0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 156. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and welcome to today's episode, folks. Today is the continuation. It is the part two of my two-part interview I did together with Andy Brown, author of the book, Warnings Unheeded*, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. I hope you really enjoyed part one last week. If you missed it, you probably ought to go back and listen to it. Otherwise, you're going to be jumping right into the middle of a really amazing story. And so episode 154 was the uh, part one of uh, this episode uh, from last week. Um, But first, today's episode is sponsored by ICE Training Uh, That is Rob Pinkus's company, where we recently were able to get together with Rob and put together a special deal from ICE Training and the Personal Defense Network. Rob would like to give you a free copy of his best 100-round practice session DVD. To my knowledge, Rob has never given away one of his DVDs like this. Have you ever wondered about what to do in practice when all you have is one hour and two boxes of ammunition? This DVD will walk you through dozens of excellent drills and scenarios to keep you sharp and at the top of your game with limited range, of time, and resources. So go pick it up. The best 100 round practice session, DVD free. Just pay shipping. Get it at concealedcarry.com forward slash best 100. That is B E S T 100. Concealedcarry.com forward slash best 100. And today's episode is also brought to you by Andrew Branca's The Law of Self Defense. And also by Burnett's Live Fire Drill Cards, of which we are huge fans of. And so, I don't want to delay too much, uh, but last week, if you listened to the episode, you'll probably note that I stopped it and I I cut it off right before... uh kind of a main climax of the story. (laughs) So we have our hero, Andy Brown, uh, responding to this active shooter at Fairchild Air Force Base. This occurred on June 20th, 1994. And uh, he is on a bike patrol. Uh, Recently he had switched over to doing, uh, I think that was actually a fairly new thing for the Air Force Base at that time. And so he hears the call go out, he rides his bike, over to the scene he passes people as he goes there they're yelling at him you know probably telling him hey you know there's a dude over here shooting it's crazy uh, but you know he, he, he's kind of aware of that but he's just really focused on on uh, finding this threat and eliminating the threat and he does in fact find the threat perpetrator Dean Melberg a uh, very mentally uh, you know sick person who you uh, Wanted to hurt some people that day, unfortunately. But fortunately for many others, Andy Brown arrived on the scene. He identifies the threat. And that's where we're going to pick it up. That's where I left off last week. Uh, So I know some of you probably were like, what? You stopped it right before we hear kind of the like I said, the climax where Mr. Brown is about to, he's drawn his weapon. He's taking sight, taking aim at, uh, uh, Dean Melberg, and, uh, he's about to pull the trigger. So with that, let's continue. So here you go. Take it away. I'll see, I'll see you on the other side.
1: Police one post six. Oh, hey, did you want me to respond over there? Here we got all you can find Fairchild 6, fire. I took him down. He's down. Police 6, he's down. Fairchild, police 1, police 2. This individual is still in the hospital. He's fighting off rounds. Copy, two people are down. Fairchild, police 6, I shot him. He's down. Roger, that's 6. But I, I knew that there was something going on at the hospital I had to get to quickly, so I was pedaling about as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of vehicles fleeing the area, and several of them rolled their windows down and were yelling at me, trying to tell me what was going on at the hospital. I couldn't understand them. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but their urgency let me know that there was something bad ahead. I kept pedaling, and as I approached the annex building where he had started the, the shooting, there was a crowd of people running toward me. They were dressed in civilian clothes, and hospital whites, and Air Force blues uniforms, and I didn't have a description of the shooter, so I scanned them for a threat as I approached them, and when I didn't see one, I rode through the crowd and was asking, where is he? And they all pointed behind themselves and and yelled, "That there's a man with a gun, he's shooting people, and he's over there. Once I got through the crowd, I could hear gunfire, but I couldn't tell where it was coming from because it was reverberating off the buildings in the area. So I continued to ride forward and finally I saw an individual in the road dressed in dark clothing and had a long gun at his hip firing to his left and his right. When I saw that I veered to the right and up onto a sidewalk that was right in front of the annex building and I dumped the bike and took up a kneeling position and drew my Beretta. And I yelled at him. If I had known that he was in the act of killing people, I know now that yelling at him this would not be necessary and is probably not a good idea because I drew his gunfire, which thankfully nobody was shot after I arrived on scene. So I guess it was effective in in that manner. Mm-hmm. But when I yelled at him, he, he started to fire in my direction, and I returned fire. I remember establishing a sight picture and i don't didn't didn't really realize how far away he was at the time but i figured if i could see him i could hit him and uh, but i thinking back i was thinking that he was pretty far away because i was having a hard time finding him in my sights i couldn't see him behind the front post of my beretta his upper body was nearly obscured by the, the front post but i did manage to get a sight picture and i fired off Three rounds in controlled succession, just pretty much as quickly as I could acquire or reacquire a sight picture. One of those first three, an individual that was under hiding underneath a car says that he reacted to, if not the first shot, one of the first shots. He said that it appeared as if the gunman was shot in the left shoulder, but I didn't see that reaction from where I was at, and I lined up a fourth shot. I remember thinking, you know, I was kind of, not panicking, but I was yelling, a voice in my head was screaming that uh, I'm shooting him and nothing's happening It was a little concerning, but it didn't stop me from lining up the fourth shot. And again, in controlled succession, I fired off the fourth round, and he immediately reacted by leaping up into the air, spinning around and landing flat on his back. One of the first three rounds did hit him in the shoulder but at the time we had to carry the ball ammo just like what you might practice with just copper jacketed lead ball and it passed clean through and through his shoulder without any sufficient damage to stop his behavior. Mm. But the fourth round hit him on the bridge of his nose and entered through his brain and and disrupted his spinal cord. I think that's what caused him to leap up into the air that that hit to the spinal cord or the brain sent electrical impulses through all of his muscles. And his legs, he was in the process of running or moving, and his legs were bent. And when that bullet went through his brain, it caused his legs to stiffen violently, which launched him up into the air. It was surprising. It was like a a Hollywood movie where they fly through the air, but it's not a normal reaction. Mm. Wow. Yeah. When I uh, saw him fall, I breathed a sigh of relief and decided I should then find some cover after the gunfire was over is when I thought about (laughs) finding uh, some suitable cover from gunfire. But I moved up to a pickup truck, which was the last position of cover between me and the gunman, and waited for backup.
0: Mm. Wow. Now, uh, real quick, Andy, uh, You know, I want to be respectful of your time, and we've been uh, going at this for a little while now. Uh, I'm curious, do you still have a little bit more time, or do we need to reconnect?
1: As much time as you need, yeah.
0: Okay. Appreciate I appreciate that. I
1: appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you. I'm, I'm happy to talk to
0: you. Thank you, sir. So you, um, I, I find a couple of things really fascinating, really about this. Uh, number one, uh, that you you talked about, you remembered acquiring a site picture. And I'm curious, have you thought about that much? I mean, as to maybe why you remember that, or what about that part that stood out in your mind? Or what do you think?
1: Well, I remember acquiring it because it was difficult to acquire. But also at the time, we didn't receive any point shoot training. It was always get a sight picture and and use the fundamentals of marksmanship to get your hit. So Mm. I didn't know anything other than getting a sight picture. And also, I think that um, mental rehearsal of having practiced firing my weapon in a lethal force encounter multiple times that actual situation was foreign to me, but the act of firing in a a lethal force incident was, was not. So I didn't panic. I just reacted and went through the, the act of getting a sight picture and, and pressing the trigger as opposed to panicking and just cranking off rounds. So I think that preparation that I made ahead of time paid off there. But if I hadn't, if I hadn't, uh, Found us, found him in my sights. I I doubt that I would have hit him, let alone two out of four hits. Because I don't think we mentioned it yet, but the sheriff's investigation later determined that the shots were made between a distance of 68 and 71 yards. I like to just round it off to 70 yards, but <laughs> we we uh, practiced at a much lesser distance than that, and. 70 yards, I think, was considered outside of the effective range of the M9, but it, it worked.
0: Right. That that was the other thing that stood out to me, too, reading that book. I mean, that that is a pretty – that's a good shot. That is, uh, that's out there a little ways for a pistol, especially, like you said, with basic combat-style sights. I mean, no – no fanziness here on that M9, right? I mean, just uh, when you said the front sight is basically covering up his body, I mean, it. I, I completely under uh, understand and, and um, I, I can see exactly how that would be.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't uh, modified. It didn't have fancy fiber optics or red dots or anything. It was just a steel post and a rear notch with white dots on them. Yeah. And in fact, it wasn't even a handgun that I had fired, That specific handgun. I hadn't even fired it before it. My duty gun that I had qualified with several times and that I was used to carrying was uh, tagged for maintenance. So I received a backup gun, which was foreign to me, although same, it was the exact same platform. It's, I guess that's the good thing about Berettas. They're all made the same, and if you can shoot one, you can shoot any of them.
0: Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so pretty long shot. Um, not an easy one to make. Uh, you remember acquiring a sight picture. You're right in that, you know, at that time, especially you didn't receive any sort of training about, you know, uh, point shooting or, or anything like that. It was align sights, pull the trigger. Um, I thought it was interesting. You talked about in the book, and you mentioned a little bit already in our interview today. You you spent a lot of time practicing. Uh, you bought a pistol that was similar to your issue, your duty pistol. You you spent time practicing, but when you practiced, you imagined uh, the the sorts of scenarios that you might be encountering as you as you shot at your targets, and that sort of mental preparation. I mean, that that's really cool that you did that. Uh, you mentioned that that may have helped you as you found yourself in this situation that you didn't really have to think about the situation that you were in so much. I mean, you just sort of, you knew you had a threat. You knew that you needed to respond, you know, sights on target, pull trigger, and eventually that threat went down. Speak a little bit based on your experience of the importance of mental rehearsal
1: yeah, I, I, I credit that to the way I performed it. I don't think I would have performed as well had I not been performing those mental rehearsals. It set me up to where, like I said, this it wasn't a foreign to me. I didn't have to think, is this really happening? And then have to think, what should I do? I just saw the lethal threat. He was firing it in my direction and I just reacted and responded as if I responded the same way I had mentally practiced numerous times previously. The technique is something I learned in Charles Remsburg's books that are familiar to most law enforcement officers, the street survival series. And he, he taught the technique there. It's similar to what you would do or what athletes do they they mentally rehearse or practice um, their performance, like they see themselves going through the motions of their sport or whatever activity it is and they see themselves reaching the goal that that they're trying to do. Like a pro bowler will sit and see the the ten pins and he'll see himself throwing the ball perfectly and he'll see the, the pins all knocking down. And that same technique can be acquired to law enforcement or even the uh, civilian armed citizen. Just envisioning any scenario that you might encounter in any in any uh, location that you might be in, and just you'd let your imagination run wild. And when you pick out a scenario, say it's an armed individual trying to get into your your door at home, you. You practice exactly what steps you would do, and you see yourself making those steps. And if you get to a point where you think, oh, I shouldn't have done this because now my kids are in a line of fire, then you go back up and and change your response to where you are somehow eliminate that <clears throat> mistake. Get your kids out of the way first or teach them what to do if this situation happens so that they're not in the way for an example. So that when you do encounter that situation, or at least one similar to it, you know exactly what you're going to do to prevail in it, and your mind takes over and you perform those actions without having to think about it. It saves valuable time instead of because when it, when a situation like that happens, that's not the time to make a plan. You need to have thought about it ahead of time and already have that plan, and just let your mind put it into action. And if you've practiced it often enough. That's
0: what your mind will do. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, those are those are excellent thoughts. You know, we had uh, Kyle Lamb on our podcast a uh, number of months ago, and he talked about something very similarly and uh, even kind of demonstrated, you know, how he sort of, you know, re- he rehearses in his mind, uh, even right down to, you know, oh, if I'm going to draw my gun, I'm going to, you know, Form my my fingers and my hand in such a way I you know create a knife's edge. I'm getting a hold of my garment. I'm drawing it out of the way. You know, it's just
1: very yeah, much like a performance, a rehearsal. Details. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So he, he ran you through it, an entire scenario in his head, how he would mentally rehearse it. Yeah, that's excellent.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that's remarkable. Uh, I mean, obviously, you credited it. Uh, credited some of the books you'd read uh, that helped you understand that. But I think that, that, that thinking obviously was very much ahead of its time. Uh, And it's still something I think we're a little bit behind the curve on in some of our training that we see in the industry uh, that has been something here at the concealed carry podcast. We, we've talked about a number of times, and this is so amazing to hear you uh, and your experience and describing what a difference that made for you. I mean, it's not every day I get to interview somebody, even on this podcast that stopped an active shooter the way you did. Uh, I know many guys probably almost, I don't know, fantasize is the right word about it, but like they they may think about, well, I'm carrying my gun because I might have to stop this kind of situation from occurring. it's not every day though, that we get to talk to somebody that's actually, actually been there, done that, and then can say one of the, you know, crediting factors was that you had mentally prepared yourself to be able to do so.
1: Yes. Yeah, I don't know if it's common amongst law enforcement officers now or if it was back then, but Remsburg's books, they were ahead of their time, but they're also still applicable today. So if if you're in law enforcement or if you're in a position where you can get a hold of those books, I would highly recommend them. They're they're still pertinent to the modern police officer even though the photographs might be from the 70s and 80s the information is still solid but yeah I I did take the job seriously and I did know that something like that could happen to me and I wanted to be as prepared as possible and so I, uh, I did a lot of things that several of my peers didn't do as far as officer safety techniques and tactics and I wasn't alone. There was a lot of other professional co-workers that I had, but some of them also gave me a hard time because they had lulled themselves into a false sense of security, believing that crimes like that, that violent crime doesn't happen on a military base or... It's like a small town, an Air Force base. It's like being a small town cop, but it doesn't mean that 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 can't happen. It doesn't mean you're immune to it. So if you're telling yourself that It'll never happen to me. Or if you are relying on somebody else to save you, if it does happen, then that's your prerogative, but it's a mistake, in my opinion. So indeed, it I'm, is. As, I'm glad as, that I. Uh, I was just going I'm, I'm glad that I did take those steps because it did save my life, and and ultimately it saved other people's lives as well. The shooter had 19 rounds left in his magazine when I dropped him, so it's a potential. Of 19 other people that he could
0: have taken out on that road. Yeah. Uh, and, and you most certainly are correct in that uh, it, we we cannot get lulled into that false sense of security, as we know from Fort Hood and Navy Yard, you know, and those shootings that have taken place in supposedly secure areas.
1: Yes. Yep, absolutely. That's what's so frustrating this happened in 1994, and then you, you have all these other incidents that specifically happened at secure facilities on, on military bases that, that people aren't learning from. They didn't learn from the one in 94. They didn't learn from the ones that happened prior to that. And they're not learning from the ones that, are, that, are ha- that happened after it. Mm. It's frustrating. I wish more people would write books similar to Warnings Unheeded so that people could see that there are repeatable incidents, pre-incident indicators that are happening that we could act on and learn to prevent these things. But it's not happening yet. I just hope, hope that it will. I hope to get the book in the right hands and, and maybe get something done to, to uh, stop these things before they happen.
0: Right. Let's spend just a moment and let's talk about some of the more specific, um, I don't know, maybe we could call them recommendations or or concepts that uh, folks might make themselves aware of, uh, particularly as it relates to hopefully recognizing some warning signs of an impending attack and uh, taking actions to prevent them. I mean, obviously, we could spend all day just talking about ways to prepare yourself mentally, physically, uh, in terms of your also in terms of your tactical abilities, your shooting abilities, uh, which I mean, we've touched on that a little bit with you already. But what about stopping or recognizing, uh, potential warning signs of an active shooter or a mass shooter. Uh, in the back of the book, I was really glad you provided some reference material. Uh, and you shared, uh, with us, and I, would seen this in some active shooting, uh, classes that I had attended of, of course before. And, but, uh, Lieutenant Dan, uh, Marcoux, uh, who is well regarded in this, in this, in this matter. And is often quoted about uh, these sorts of things. He came up with the five phases of a mass public murderer. Uh, some of those, yes. and what those are: fantasy phase, planning phase, preparation phase, approach phase, and implementation phase. Can you walk us through those briefly and explain what they mean? And and you know where may- maybe some of the opportunities might have been to to stop uh, the Fairchild event.
1: Sure. Also in the book is a list of. Traits of a potentially violent person that I took from Dr. Greg Moffat's book, Blindsided Homicide, where it's least expected. Hmm. And he has 22 traits in there that are common to a potentially violent person that could be useful before the person even reaches the, the planning or the fantasy stage. But some of them would be like a person has a history of aggressive behavior or People around him, like his co-workers, have a, a fear of him, kind of like the, that uh, Sergeant Prescott did at Cannon Air Force Base, where he had a fear of him and even feared that he would come to work with a gun someday. And a lot of other things is that they have a, a real feel, feeling that they're the target of violence has done them wrong, and, and that they have a grudge against them, even if it's... A, misguided. But as far as the the five phases of a active shooter, the fantasy stage is, is where he's just just that. He's fantasizing, dreaming about committing the act. And he's hoping to break the body count of the previous active shooter. They they study other active shooters and idolize them and and hope to be able to commit more violence and kill more people than the, the previous one. They might post about it online, or or tell their friends about it, or they might even tell their enemies about it. And then the next stage is the planning phase, where the potential killer is is actually making the plan. He he determines where it's going to happen, and what weapons that he might use, and and who he's going to kill, and how he's going to get there, and like what clothing he might wear, and that that type of thing. He's just making all the plans that he possibly could. And then the third phase would be the preparation phase, where he obtains everything that he's made the plan about as far as he obtains the weapons and the ammunition or maybe the explosives. And he might conduct a, a practice run or a dry run, like Melbourne did at Cannon Air Force Base. And they might call their friends and tell them not to go to school or not to go to work on a specific day in order to keep them out of out of danger. And then the approach phase is when the person is actually en route to the location where they're going to commit their act. And every one of those phases, there's still an opportunity for intervention. If somebody picks up on, on them and reports it to the authorities, there's still a time to to intervene before it happens. But then the fifth stage is the implementation phase where the perpetrator is actually committing the attack, and he'll continue killing until he decides to stop or until he runs out of ammo or until he is forced to stop, like you said earlier. And that's when civilians and citizens need to have had a plan in place already to either
0: get out of there,
1: if that's always an option, even if you're carrying a gun, you You might not be in a situation to safely use it, but so evacuation, especially if you're with your loved ones, that's your first priority is to get yourself out of there. Everybody else at that facility or wherever it's occurring at has had the opportunity to defend themselves and to take training and to carry a gun, so you're not responsible unless you're a police officer. You're not responsible to go in there and save the day. However, if it's occurring at a daycare or a school, that might be a different, you might have a different reaction there. You might choose to intervene no matter what. I know that I would, but those are decisions that I've already made ahead of time. I've, you need to figure out who in your life is worth saving and, and risking your life for and your liberty, because if something goes wrong, you may be uh, held responsible legally afterward. But that's all about training. You need to learn when and where it is appropriate to to use lethal force and and start thinking about it ahead of time and making that plan and deciding what you would do in, in certain situations as far as acting or getting the hell out of there.
0: Right. You know we could really probably break it down. And it's so it's, of course it's so easy to armchair quarterback this whole, this whole thing. And and that's not necessarily fair to do as far as like, we're not here to criticize the people that are involved uh, or anything like that. But I think it is a fair thing to do from an analysis standpoint in in that we want to learn and we want to try to help and we want to, you know, potentially stop similar things from happening in the future and in every one of these phases, uh, you can identify warning signs that were present in Melberg's situation. And as we've already touched on, it's so frustrating to read some of those. You're like, "Oh wow!" You know, like how did how did this slip through the cracks? But I was thinking too. There was even during the implementation phase. So this is when Melberg's actually he's he's there and he is he's committing the act. And uh, he staged everything in the bathroom. He walked into the uh, annex building, uh, into the bathroom, had his ba- his big bag with the uh, box with the rifle in it and all that, right? And he stages it in, in the stall in the bathroom. And as soon as he has that rifle ready and loaded, he leaves. And wasn't it right then, I think just before he went into, uh, was it Dr. London or Dr. Brigham's uh, office first? But was it? Was it just before he went into one of their offices and shot them that he walked by two uh, individuals with with a gun in hand? And they were kind of like, you know, they were just shocked.
1: Yes. Yeah. About halfway down the hallway, he encountered uh, two airmen, a doctor and a, a senior NCO who was a patient. They were standing in the hallway talking when Melper walked past them close enough to where, the muzzle of his rifle brushed the stomach of one of the individuals. And they just kind of looked at themselves and, and questioned themselves, but didn't say anything to Melberg. They questioned whether or not people are supposed to be carrying weapons in the annex or if it was a military police exercise. Or mm-hmm. They were basically in denial. They They didn't think the furthest thing from their mind was that this person was here to do harm. They were trying to make sense of it in any other way other than that the individual was a intent on killing people. But that comes down to, to training also. And it was a training scar that the military police, that the security police at the base conducted a lot of exercises where they would simulate armed robberies and and other alarm activations at buildings and such where. The citizens or the populace of the base were used to seeing the, the police playing games and practicing situations. To where, when, the, when there was a real incident, they assumed it was an exercise and and failed to act mm. um, promptly enough. To where they they could have uh, taken some action to, to restrain the individual or gotten out of there sooner. Or, there was a lot of people in, in denial trying to to justify that that sound of gunfire was anything but gunfire once it started they attributed it to construction or cars backfiring or fireworks because it was June 20th it was close to independence day but yeah mm. but i put that that in the book that the individual walked right past two people with a rifle and that they didn't do anything other than yell and evacuate the building after the the gunfire started. That was a, a good response, but it was also an opportunity for them to have intervened. Yeah, and not, not didn't put it in there to Monday morning quarterback them and and uh, tell them like say that they that they made a mistake and that they did something wrong. It was just a learning opportunity, like every other incident that I portray in the book. It's just something that we all need to learn from. That there are opportunities to prevent these things from happening in the first place or intervene efficiently and, and quickly as soon as they do begin, like when he stopped to, to wind his magazine that and clear a malfunction. If anybody was close enough and familiar with, with weapons, that they could have identified that as, a, as an opportunity to tackle him and, and uh, pile on him and, and remove the weapon from him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, I'll tell you. As I was reading that part in the book, knowing what was coming, and I'm reading that, and like my heart was pounding, you know, because yeah. you see how close uh, that that someone could have been to that would that would have been a prime opportunity to
1: yeah, and you're yelling you're yelling at him in your head like grab that gun right
0: yeah 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 interesting that you called all the training exercises that, uh, that the air force ran on the base there, uh, you referred to that as training scars as far as it, it sort of conditioned the occupants of the base and of the hospital to being used to those sorts of things happening all the time. I, I, yeah. I, I, I use the phrase training scar much in the context of like what I might do, uh, specific to, you know, the way I draw my gun or reload or, uh, you know, scanning or whatever after a drill or, you know, all, but I I hadn't really thought of, of that as necessarily being like a a training scar, but you did point that out a couple different places in the book. uh, People kind of saying that they thought they thought it was a, just a training exercise and that's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. A lot of people hesitated because of that. So Mm. it's just hopefully something that the military can learn from and, and be able to make a clear designation between a training exercise and so that people would be able to recognize a real threat as being real.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, let's address real quick then, uh, now the, uh, the mental he- health aspect of this, which is kind of like the elephant in the room here. Uh, we've touched on on it somewhat and clearly Melberg was disturbed and he had issues. And we see that so often in, in other mass shootings, uh, Yeah. We see it all the time, unfortunately. Uh, I was thinking of the Aurora Theater shooting, James Holmes. I mean, that's my backyard. I'm here in Colorado. um, Yeah, absolutely. And he clearly had some some mental health issues. Uh, Many others have had those. And you touched a little bit on the injustices that Millberg seemed to feel that had been incurred upon him. And uh, by by others and by those around him, and I was reminded in reading that and thinking about that of of James Holmes in the Aurora theater shooting, in how he had some similar, you know, traits in that regard, where he sort of had this he had taken this view of the world around him as being. It's a little bit different than Melberg because he actually got to a point where he sort of reasoned that there there is basically no value in human life. You know whether people were alive or dead, it didn't really matter. Um, but he, I think he got to that point because he didn't um, he he viewed the world as you know he didn't fit into the world. The world didn't accept him, and in a lot of ways, and thus it didn't really matter if he took out his, his angst and his frustration on others. So how do we, how do you think, I mean, and I know you, you're, you're probably not the guy with all the answers and I don't know if anybody truly is, but do you think there's a, a place where we can start addressing mental health issues and, and hopefully start making impact on, on keeping these sorts of things from happening?
1: Well, yeah, you're you're right. I'm not the expert. I I gathered as much information as I possibly could and put it in the book so that the experts would have the ammunition to uh, to make the right decisions. But I know that what's happening now is not effective. It's not working. When somebody is deemed violent, I think it takes too much in order to deem somebody violent they have to actually have practically have uh hurt somebody before they can be evaluated against their will and even then they're held for maybe 72 hours and then they're released and if they don't they might they might have uh received a benefit from from medication they were taking and they might have showed in, improvement in their symptoms but if they're released after 72 hours without anybody following up on them to to ensure they continue taking that medication, They just go right back to their old ways and become a potential um, threat to people. And not only are they a threat to people, but they're a threat to themselves, some people. They're so sick that they don't realize they need help, and they end up becoming unable to care for themselves, and they become homeless or in the prisons and jails which have become our mental health treatment centers of late. There aren't enough facilities and programs to treat all of the
0: mentally ill
1: in America today. And the programs we do have in place, like I said, are inadequate. They they don't hold people long enough. They don't can't get the people who need the help in there. The police are becoming the psychologists and the jails are becoming the treatment facilities. Mm. A lot of the law enforcement officers are forced to shoot and kill violently mentally ill people because they are a, a threat to them. Whereas if there was a program in place to get them the treatment, and if they were able to uh, be medicated long enough to where they realized that the life they had led was was not good, and that they really are benefiting from treatment, and then maybe they even an outpatient, a mandated treatment outpatient facility where they have to check in and and prove that they're in compliance and and taking their medication. I don't think all mentally ill people should be mandated to receive care, but if if you're so sick that you are a threat to others, to your family and, and to people around you, or if you're so sick that you can't care for yourself and your only option is to live in the streets or or be picked up by police for minor infractions and be a regular customer of the jails, then we owe it to them to, to have a better system in place to to treat them and give them help. But I don't have the exact answers, and I don't want to violate people's rights, but there comes up a point where somebody... One person's rights don't outweigh another person's right to live, or to live without fear of being killed. So, right, we got to find a balance there somewhere.
0: Indeed, we do. Hurt, so. And and yeah. one thing that is clear is that uh, resources are extremely uh, short in uh, mental health treatment. Um, and uh, I suppose it's frustrating for you, much like it is for me when we see governments using money for gun buyback programs, instead of maybe funneling that into improving our mental health institutions. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And there's a lot of money wasted on other programs that don't benefit people, or they benefit people that don't really need it. And there's also a lot of money spent on prison systems Mm -hmm. and jails where They didn't used to have to treat or house so many people that were only in there because they committed a crime that was probably a cause of their mental health problems. Mm. Yeah. So I think if, if they fix that system, they'll find money elsewhere that they don't need to be spending. Yeah. But like I said, I don't have all the answers. I just know that there's a problem out there, and I put as much information as I could in the book so that people can use that
0: to try to figure it out. Yeah. So obviously it's not an easy, an easily found solution to addressing problems in the mental health system, um, addressing, you know, and coming up with some, some solutions for, for those. But uh, I think it's great that you wrote this book to at least draw to people's attention, hopefully that there are problems, valid, very valid problems that do need to be addressed, and and hopefully, I mean, I, I just don't get the sense that there's a great urgency, uh, you know, in a general sense uh, from from whether it be the federal government or even state governments or or various organizations that are always fighting so hard to supposedly stop gun violence from occurring. That so often we we look at the, the guns, like you've s- suggested, and not so much at the people. We know we're short. Handed and short-staffed and shortly-supplied on the mental health side of things. And there are no easy answers. But the rest of us, we can definitely learn from this experience too that we need to be really cognizant of mental health issues and people struggling with those and looking for the warning signs. Like, like we already touched on, uh, being aware of these different phases that one might go through uh, leading up to a mass shooting or mass casualty event. Um, and then also, you know, sharing from uh, Dr. Moffat's book, like you shared, the blindsided homicide where it was least expected. These traits of a potentially violent person would be, there's too many really to list here in the podcast, uh, but maybe I can put these in the show notes of today's episode that might that might be helpful uh in case yeah, folks, that'd be great. Yeah, in case folks aren't familiar with them, I would review these and be aware of them and watch for these signs. Um because hopefully the rest of us even though we we may not have a perfect mental health system, we don't have a perfect prison system, but we can hopefully be proactive and recognize the signs ahead of time. Uh, because we've educated ourselves about what those signs might be and what it might look like. Read this book because for me, it, I was able to gain a lot of insight into the mind of Dean Melberg. And and then also seeing the shortcomings of the, of the system. I'll just use in a very broad sense the system that clearly did not work. And then let's try to, in our own lives, in our own way, where we, ha- where we have some circle of influence, try to n- prevent these sorts of things from occurring, I think would be uh, what I'm trying to get at here. The aftermath of this whole incident involving you, uh, Andy, uh, traumatic situation, obviously, for all involved, traumatic for you. And I was... As I was reading the book, I was like, "Man, I sure hope he talks about how this affected him personally after the fact." And I, I there was this part of me that was afraid that you wouldn't. And then I got there, and you and you talked about the struggles that you personally had in your life following this this incident. You know, th- the fact that you had to pull the trigger, you had to take this man's life to to save others. Could you, you know, kind of briefly? I know that was a, a, a process over many years. But can you briefly summarize kind of what you felt, what you experienced, and how you've overcome that?
1: You bet. It, it, it took several years for me to recover from it, but it also took a few years for it to fully develop the uh, the effects of the trauma. They weren't immediate. But after the shooting, I had no guilt and still don't, as far as taking the life of the shooter. That is easily justified in my mind, and and thankfully I don't have any regrets or feel any remorse for having ended the the killing, but I did, over time, develop anxiety and intrusive thoughts. Everything I looked at, everything I heard or, or saw, somehow generated a memory of the incident or the perpetrator or a victim. Or the environment that I was in at the time, it just brought back intrusive thoughts. They weren't flashbacks. I wasn't it didn't feel like I was reliving the uh, scenario, but it just I constantly was thinking about the incident and couldn't stop. And when I would have a memory of that incident, it would reach trigger the adrenaline response. And even some of those memories were subconscious. I would just almost constantly be experiencing increased anxiety, and it was triggered by, like I said, sometimes things that I wasn't even aware of. But that constant anxiety made me irritable, and eventually I started to avoid things that reminded me of the, of the situation, and then I avoided things that caused me anxiety, like crowds and in public spaces. And I would sought mental health, treatment. I sought counseling shortly after the shooting just to see if I was dealing with the the incident okay. And I was told that I wasn't handling it properly, that I was um, experiencing normal reaction to it. And I decided to continue seeking counseling. But when I realized that my command had relieved me of duty and and taken my gun away from me, I told the counselor that I was fine and, and had to write a letter to my command so I could get my gun back and go back to work, which was a mistake on my part. I should have just sucked it up and and continued talking with her and processed the shooting and how it was affecting me so that I could, you know, come to terms with it and uh, learn how to deal with it more healthily. But in the end, I turned to alcohol when the anxiety became too much. So whenever I was off duty, I was usually drinking in order to calm my nerves and usually stayed in my room unless i was out partying with my buddies pretty much didn't do any socializing unless there was alcohol involved because it it caused me a lot of uh, anxiety but that led to depression and just kind of a snowball effect it just the symptoms grew progressively worse until even the mundane things in my job caused me anxiety to where it reached a point where I was so irritable and, and would get easily frustrated that I decided I needed to get out of the military before I got myself in trouble. And so I I ended the, my Air Force career about five years after the shooting. And uh, prior to that, I had sought counseling again when things started to get worse and was promptly relieved of duty and and had my gun rights taken from me. So. I again told the counselor that, that I was fine and got my gun back and went back to work. I was able to do my job effectively. I just, off-duty, I was a mess. But anyway, I got out of the Air Force, and like I said earlier, I bounced around a lot of industrial jobs as a laborer. Um, and prior to this, I was, the, the shooting happened when I was 24, so I was fairly young and didn't have family so I was living by myself in a dormitory room, so I didn't really have anybody to talk to. Once I got out of the military, I met my wife and and got married and had eventually had two kids. So then I had something that was worth getting better for. And plus, my wife didn't put up with my crap. So she encouraged me to continue seeking counseling. And through that persistence, I eventually found something that uh, did work for me. Some, programs with the VA. And also I changed my, my thought process. I had grown very cynical. I thought everybody was a uh, out to get me and that everybody was around me was stupid, especially after getting out of the military. I had a hard time adapting to civilian life and thought that uh, anybody who wasn't in the military was an idiot, which is not right, but I think it's a pretty common... Feeling about amongst people that it were in the military, because things are so different on the outside world. But I eventually learned to relax and uh, realize that not everybody is out to get me. That everybody else is probably dealing with a with a problem of their own. And if they make a mistake in driving around in traffic, that it's not a personal affront toward me, which is what I used to think. I would get pretty furious behind the wheel. Mm. But I, I changed. Changed my thought process and and found programs that helped me deal with the shooting and and realize exactly what about it was bothering me so that I could address it and um, come to terms with it. Mm. It uh, it was a lifesaver. And now I'm able to control my anxiety without alcohol and without medication. And life is good. I've got two young kids and a wife who loves me, and, and I was able to find a good job with the Border Patrol, so... That's another reason why I was so open in the book about what happened to me, because a lot of people might think that that that's a weakness, that response. but I think it's fairly common, just not a lot of people talk about it. And I wanted to try to help remove the stigma of seeking mental health treatment and also hope that law enforcement um, departments don't immediately remove somebody from their duties just because they want to go talk to a counselor unless there's a, unless that counselor identifies a reason why that should be done. Then that shouldn't be done because that's a a hindrance. People are not going to reach out for help if they think they're going to be relieved of duty because that draws a big uh, red flag to where your coworkers are going to think there's something wrong with you. You can't be trusted anymore. And that's a, a detriment to a law enforcement officer's lifestyle and career. If he doesn't think he can be trusted, he's not going to reach out and seek help. Right. Or if he thinks people aren't going to trust him, he's not going to go and see a counselor.
0: Right. Yeah, that, that was a, a part. A, you know, part of your story as you were explaining the uh, your re, your own personal recovery that. It's kind of frustrating to read, you know, that you, you try to get some help and it's not like you're crazy and you're, you're not going to do anything, you know, crazy uh, necessarily, but you just need some help and it's like you're punished for it. Um, I I kind of wonder, do you think that maybe as a, from a mental health system standpoint that we could do a little bit better job too of, I don't know if it's, if it's the mental health, uh, you know, doctor's. Uh, necessarily them alone, or if it's kind of the whole system of how mental health works together with, with military and with police and with um, other organizations and agencies. But like I said, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, like do we need to do a better job of educating those that work in those sectors as far as understanding that, Hey, this person's okay. You know, like we don't have to take away their guns and take away their jobs just because they're getting some mental health, um, they just they need some. You know, this is comp- completely completely normal what they're going through. We just need to help them work through that.
1: Yeah, I, I do think that that people do need to be educated on that too. I I imagine there are some departments who are on top of it and are aware that just because you want to talk to somebody after a a traumatic event, I mean that's that should be expected and it actually should be required. Whether somebody knows it or not, it uh, it is beneficial to, to be able to talk it out and process it. But I also believe that there are departments out there and, and maybe even military agencies that still punitively, or at least it seems punitive, relieve somebody from duty just because they're going to see a counselor before they even have heard from that counselor whether or not it's a necessary step. And right. if that is happening, it it really needs to stop because if somebody knows they're going to be relieved of duty just because they want to go talk to somebody, they're they're not going to, to do that. They're not going to seek that help.
0: Yeah. And I know there's a lot of sensitivity there. I mean, like, there's obviously uh, uh, rights to privacy and, and things that get involved. But, uh, you know, and I do suspect that we do a better job at this than we did 23 years ago. But we do know and we hear of situations and stories where uh, there, there is still that stigma surrounding any sort of mental health treatment uh, that assuming you're meeting with a, with a, a specialist, uh, you're, you're branded and there's something wrong yeah. with you. And I was so thankful that you addressed that in your book, that you talked about your own personal uh, journey, working through all that stuff. And I hope we can get that out more to the masses, because there is nothing wrong with um, the feelings, the uh, the the PTSD. You know, the these things that are they're they're natural bodily and and mental you know reactions to the stress that one experienced in a situation. And there's legitimate ways of treating it, and it doesn't necessarily have to take the person out of. The fight, so to speak, meaning you know, taking them off the job or treating them uh, differently because of it.
1: So absolutely, and I just want to make sure that the people know that I I don't have any hard feelings toward the Air Force. Back then, there we weren't involved in a lot of uh, shootings, and we weren't at we weren't at war really at the time, so there was not a lot of incidences of PTSD and there' yep. was certainly not a lot of uh police involved shootings back home at a stateside base, so nobody knew what to do with me, and they were just following procedures right, or at least they thought they were so I know that a lot of people have learned lessons from that situation, but I still thought it was relevant to tell that story because i I know that there are some agencies that that might not treat their officers properly or the best way possible after a, a situation. So there's still a lot of lessons that can be learned from that that incident and from my experience there with the, the effects of trauma. Even from the get-go, being removed after the uh, shooting, I helped search and clear the, the main hospital for an hour or two and then was called out to the perimeter and was relieved of duty about uh, five hours earlier than I should have been and had my weapon taken from me for evidence. And a lot of officers or agencies will give that officer a replacement gun, a loaded firearm, maybe somebody's loaner gun or something, so that he doesn't feel disarmed, it doesn't feel like it's punitive. And that would have been real beneficial to me. The first thing I wanted to do was go and get my personal... Weapon. Once you're, as soon as you're involved in a shooting, and somebody disarms you at the scene of that shooting, it was kind of a vulnerable experience.
0: Mm. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, I, I, I'm afraid I've, I've, I've taken you for <laughs> uh, plenty of time here, and uh, this has just been a, a wonderful interview together with An- Andy Brown author of uh, Warnings and Heated Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. Uh, Andy, is there anything that you feel like we haven't covered or any last words that you'd kind of like to throw out there um, to folks before I let you go?
1: Um, Just want to thank your audience for taking seriously the responsibility of carrying concealed and make sure that they know that just carrying the gun isn't isn't enough. You need to be getting professional training with it, and also doing those mental rehearsals so that you'll know what to do if you do experience an incident. And if they're interested in learning more about what happened at Fairchild, they can find the book at, at Amazon. In, it's in print as well as ebook, And there's also a Warnings Unheated Facebook page if they want to learn more about uh, what's going on with, with the book. Oh
0: I didn't know that. Just, I'm gonna go follow that right now.
1: All right. See <laughs> how informative your show is? <laughs> also the, the book just received uh or was nominated as a semi finalist for the Kindle Book Award.
0: Awesome. Congrats.
1: Yeah. So in hopefully in November we'll find out if I was a or if the book was a finalist and then no, October, we'll find out if it's a list and then in November, we'll see who won. There's, it's in the uh, nonfiction category. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how it does there.
0: Excellent. Congratulations to you, sir.
1: Thank you. So if they like the book, I encourage them to give it a review on, on Amazon. That would be appreciated. But I'm, I appreciate the show that you put on and for having me on here and, and for letting me talk so long about it. I, it's my goal to, to uh, spread the word about the book as much as possible so that as many people as possible can learn from it and benefit from the lessons that are in it.
0: Indeed. And thanks again for your time, Andy. Uh, it's been my pleasure having you on, uh, and, uh, giving you that time and, and forum to, uh, To go over this all, I I really – well, I'll just say I know that uh, once folks are able to listen to this interview of this episode of this podcast that uh, they're going to benefit tremendously from it and be better informed and better educated about it. So thank you, sir. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you for the book. Uh, Warnings and Heated." go pick up a copy, read it. I think it'll uh, change your life in a lot of respects and, and change your perspective on these sorts of things. So, Andy, thanks again, sir. I wish you the best and uh, hope to connect with you again soon.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Riley. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, so there you have it. Uh, That wraps up just a fantastic interview and and time spent uh, together with Andy Brown, author of the book, Warnings Unheated. If you haven't already, I would hope that you'd go pick up a copy of this book, read it, Dive into it, learn from it, implement in your life, whatever you need to, so that hopefully you're a little bit better prepared. And also, I think we could take from this too uh, some lessons learned about our mental health uh, system, how we might make some improvements there, uh, at least some things we should be aware of, and maybe we can be writing our Congress people, um, you know, those that represent us and write the laws. Maybe we could be putting some pressure on them to to try to to do some common sense things that addresses some mental health issues here in our country. As we know, a large portion of these active shooter and mass shooting events uh, are perpetrated by those with some mental, you know, in in some cases, very serious mental health issues. And so, there's definitely some things that could be done. The answers are not easy. Uh, we see some things that have been done or attempted to be done, and, and they, they flirt with confiscation and surrendering of Second Amendment rights and things like that, which, you know, that's an issue. And it's an issue we should take very seriously and uh, we should consider um, very thoroughly. Some other things, though, too, obviously, I think what came out of this is recognizing warning signs in people we might come in contact with. And not only that; it's not just about recognition, because I think what what you heard in this interview and what you'll read in the book is there were there were warning signs all over the place, and some people caught on to those. Or at least they they noted them. They they were aware that hey, this dude is he's off his rocker. He scares me. He's doing some scary stuff. And, and in some cases, people did speak up, but they weren't always listened to. And so, but there are times too. We we've seen we've seen it where. There are warning signs, but nobody really says anything to anybody. Or when something is said, sometimes people don't have the courage to act on what is brought to their attention. Because of fear and because of a lot of reasons. Because it is not an easy thing to to solve and to address. They're all tricky things to consider and to be aware of and to try to fix. There's not an easy solution no matter which way you turn or look. But I hope that from this episode and, and these two, two episodes, really, like I said, these two parts of this interview, that hopefully we all learn something from this. And hopefully we can find those solutions. Maybe you've got some ideas and maybe you can share those with us here at the Concealed Carry Podcast or pass those on to, to your lawmakers. And let's see if we can't do something to address some of these problems. So I thank you for listening to this interview and this episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast today. Uh, a, reminder, a reminder that today's episode is brought to you by, first of all, Andrew Branca's The Law of Self-Defense. You've heard it probably a few times now uh, We since we had Andrew on the program a month or so ago. Uh, another great episode that if you haven't listened to it, you're going to want to go back and, and re-listen to that one as well. Let's see if I can pull up that episode number real quick. That one was, here it is, episode 148. Stand your ground, self-defense law with Andrew Branca is what it was titled. We covered some really critical legal uh, implications and 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 things that you've got to understand as a CCW'er out there in the real world. So you know, not, not only to avoid issues from the from the in the first place, you know, not only to make sure that you know what the law is and what you can and cannot do so that you avoid making the wrong decision from the get go, but also how to protect yourself and have or or put together your best compelling narrative of innocence. That's something that your defense team is going to want to have. That's what they've got to put together if they're going to have a chance at saving you in a situation where you do have legal problems relating to a use of force uh, incident. So Andrew has put together resources that you need, and you can get this through a lot of a lot of different opportunities. He's got live in person courses online training. He has his best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense, and also he just put together and released in in probably, what, a week or two ago. He now has video DVDs. Here's the cool thing about what Andrew does. Whether he goes and teaches an in-person course, or if it's the online training, or if it's even these new training DVDs, it is customized to the state that you live in. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. He knows the laws for basically all 50 states. And there's very few attorneys out there that have the depth and and breadth of knowledge that Andrew has in regards to the law of self-defense. That's why he's the expert. So go check it out at concealedcarry.com forward slash L-O-S-D for law of self-defense. And today's other sponsor is Live Fire Drill Cards. These revolutionary training aids from Burnett are the slickest drill cards we've ever seen which is why we partnered with the creator to bring them to you. These cards will walk you through dozens of fundamental shooting drills that will help you shoot better, faster. These cards list all the requirements to shoot each drill. They detail parameters to accomplish those drills and give you multiple fields to record multiple runs through the drill so you can track your progress. I promise you will see measurable improvement towards becoming a better shooter over time. Check it out. Here's a special link, concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC special, that stands for live fire drill cards special, concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC special. And what that's going to give you is a special opportunity, a special offer to pick up three of these drill cards, just so you can check them out. Free shipping, really a great deal. Go check it out, concealedcarry.com forward slash LFDC special. And we thank our sponsors, including our top uh, sponsor of today's episode, which was uh, Ice Trainings and Rob Pincus' Best 100-Round Practice Session DVD. And just a reminder, go go pick that up at concealedcarry.com forward slash best 100. And that's a free DVD. Just pay shipping. So today you got a couple of great opportunities to, to check out uh, an awesome training DVD and awesome live fire drill cards for very, very, very low cost. I am now going to wrap it up here shortly, but I do have a pick of the week and my pick this week. Last week was a knife as well with the uh, part one of uh, this interview with Andy. Uh, so I've got another knife here today and I just picked this one up recently. It was on sale. Uh, got a really good deal on it. So I was like, that's a no brainer. I've got to get it. And I've been really enthused about this knife. This is a Benchmade Griptilian. This is a Mel Pardue design. Uh, I think the model number specifically is like five five one. Just just go to Benchmade.com and you, can, if you plug in there Griptilian five five one or something like that, uh, you'll find it. Uh, it is uh, seriously. This is a this is a great little knife. My mine's got the plastic handle, so this is a little bit cheaper version. They have some with the G10 handles and um, you know stuff like that that are two hundred dollar range. This one retails, I believe, for about one thirty five. I got considerably less than that, uh, but it is a fantastic knife. It is made with one fifty four cm steel. Uh, that's just a really good quality, but still you know reasonably priced steel. Uh, I've noticed. It is super sharp. It holds an edge really well. I've been cutting everything with it in the last week or two, and uh, it is it is still razor sharp. I mean, I am I am shaving arm hairs <laughs> right now as we speak. It is. I haven't touched it to the sharpener yet, and it is. Uh, just a really impressive uh, knife. Uh, of course, it's got the really one of the best uh, locking mechanisms out there, I think. Oh, and also Benchmade, of course, as they do with all their knives, has a an excellent lifetime warranty. Uh, I'm excited, by the way, because some of the shows we go to, uh, and I don't know if you're ever fortunate to, to do this as well, but I've seen them at Shot Show. I've seen them at the NRA annual meetings. Uh, that, that'd probably be a good opportunity for a lot of you listeners. Uh, but if you see the Benchmade booth there, they always have their craftsmen, there sharpening knives for people, I believe, for free. So I am looking forward to taking advantage of that opportunity. Uh, I suspect that this thing will be, it'll hold its, its edge pretty well until SHOT Show in January. And then I'm going to show up at the booth and say, okay, I'm ready for for a new edge here. So anyway, there you go. That's my pick this week. Coming up, just a reminder, we do have a live in-person, this is the level one and level two Law of Self Defense classes or courses with Andrew Branca in Lakewood, Colorado, pretty close to our headquarters here at concealedcarry.com. If you're anywhere near the area or can be in the area on November 11th and 12th, November 11th is the level one class, November 12th is the level two class. You're going to want to take advantage of those. You can see those on the schedule uh, concealedcarry.com forward slash LOSD. Uh, so go sign up for one of those classes if you're in the area, or if you're not anywhere in the area, Andrew is always traveling the country teaching all over the place. Chances are you can find a, a class near you. And then the other thing we have coming up is a, our you know we've been launching this new curriculum of training. Uh, this will be our third official time to teach this. We've been working through some kinks, really wanting to 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 get this right. And soon we're gonna we're getting very close to rolling out nationwide uh, this. Guardian curriculum is what we're calling it. You know, many of you we are familiar with our Guardian Nation uh, membership. So this is really kind of an extension uh, of of you know that brand and wanting to create this community community of guardians nationwide of people that are prepared and ready to defend themselves, their families, and their communities effectively. And so we have our Guardian Essentials pistol course is kind of like a defensive handgun one level one class uh but what we're trying to achieve in the in guardian essentials pistol is teach you all of the like absolute fundamental things that you've got to have basic fighting skills with a handgun it is comprehensive it is fun it is fast paced it is highly educational reports back, even though we've been, like I said, working out some of the finer points and details of the course, reports back and feedback from students has been excellent. Uh, and we're really looking forward to getting this totally rolled out. And it, we should, you should, hopefully we'll be seeing classes coming to a, to a town near you very soon. Uh, that, that is our hope. So we'll see how that all goes. And we've got a whole series of courses. This is going to be built or going to be building upon this as well going forward. So a lot of work ahead of us. There you go. That's today's episode. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Uh, We really appreciate you listeners for supporting us in all we do. It wouldn't be possible. And plus we would not probably want to do what we do if we didn't have listeners. So thanks for listening. Thanks for the the feedback and the reviews you leave us. It uh, pumps us up every time we get those positive uh, feedback messages. It also is is even a little bit of a lift to get any sort of feedback, even sometimes when it's a little bit critical, just so we know where we can make a little bit of a tweak and adjust some things uh, so that uh, we can make it better. So with that, I am going to bid you farewell Till next week. We'll see you next Monday for our typical Monday news version of the podcast. Until then, train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody.